Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm going to have a wonderful show for you today. Chris Palmer, my favorite uh, Greek geek, I think that's what he think of himself as. He's got a great podcast called Greek for the Week, and he's uh, written a book called Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. I really enjoy uh, Chris. I'm going to bring him on in just a minute or so. Uh, so we're going to have uh, a great day. I'm also going to be joined uh, in the second hour by... Uh, Pastor Daniel Henderson has written a new book on prayer. I think we're all in the mood for uh, learning more about improving our prayer life. And then uh, Dr. Everett Piper will be joining me in hour two. And then Pastor John Somerville will be coming on in the second half of this hour. So I think we're going to have an outstanding show. I'll do my best to get out of the way and let my brilliant guests uh, bring us great messages of hope and encouragement. So let me take 60 seconds and bring on Chris. I'm Carmen LeBurge, host of Mornings with Carmen. As Christians, we have the eternal hope of Christ and His glory. And in these unprecedented times, Faith Radio is here to offer you hope and encouragement every hour of the day. Join me for an evening of hope this Thursday, March 26th at 7 p.m. for a live video stream event. Just go to MyFaithRadio.com and join our live video stream for hope-filled conversation and connection. It will be a time to reflect on God's Word and pray together for our needs and the needs of the nation and the world. Find out more at MyFaithRadio.com. It's not just information. It's transformation. You just start loving people like crazy and being generous with your time and your money and your energy and invite people over, ask them questions, listen to them, love them, and then you come back and tell me what happens in a couple months. All of my plans, all of my dreams, I down all of my It's this Jesus who lives in me, and he gave me a dislocated heart. Faith Radio. Okay, you have a little bit of spare time in your life, maybe a little bit of extra time. This is a good time to become a student of Greek. Learn Greek. You'll never regret it. My guest, Chris Palmer, is a Greek lover. He loves Greek. As a matter of fact, he's got a podcast every week. He's written a book uh, called Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation, and just an enjoyable guest. Chris, welcome back to the show. Bill, it's so glad uh, glad to be with you, so <laughs> glad to be on. And uh, just, you know, it's it, I just, when, when they asked me to come on, I was so happy. I said, I just can't miss it. So I'm happy to be with you guys and your audience today. Well, I appreciate it. And, you know, people do have uh, time when they're home and they're, they're looking for a little projects and hobbies. Hey, how about learn some Greek? You know, it's now or never. It's now or never. <laughs> they have more time than they know what to do with. So if, if they have plans of learning Greek, this would be, I think, the optimal time. Yeah. Do and you got interested right away. As a matter of fact, I remember reading in your book that when you were like three, you wanted a microscope from your parents for Christmas. <laughs> you always wanted to know the, the basics of everything, didn't you? I want to know the basics. I like to get under the hood and see how it works. And, uh, you know, that microscope, I felt bad for every spider in the neighborhood because I was killing them and putting their legs under it and seeing what a spider is made out of. So mm. I, then when I got to the Word of God, I was like, hey, what's how deep can we go with this? So right. it took me to you know. How do you live with yourself? Anyway, <laughs> right. 
Let's talk about some of the aspects of, of uh, biblical translation that, are, that we would say are lost in translation. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, you know, this is what I learned when I was uh, started traveling into other nations and preaching the Word of God is I would say, like, hi, it's good to be with you here today, church. And then the translator would say five or six sentences, and I'd, they, I'd say, well, what, what are you adding to what I'm saying? They said, no, um, it just takes more words to, to say that in this particular language. Uh, so I started to begin to see that language isn't always as word for word as we suggest it might be. And then the most difficult thing is um, idioms, you know, and, and making sure that our idioms um, come over. I remember when I would say, you know, does that make sense? And the translator would tell me after service, you really can't say, does that make sense? Because when you stop to think about it, what do you mean by make sense? I mean, it's the 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 word in itself is pretty idiomatic, so I would have to say, do you understand? Because I was using an idiom for it. And so in the art of biblical Greek, uh, or any translation, but we're talking Greek here, is sometimes things don't come over and or they're idiomatic. I always use that example in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And so that is pretty word for word, but he's being idiomatic about it. So one translation says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations for, with a woman, um, but that's not really being word for word about it. It's being don't touch, but then, but they're kind of translating the idiom into it, what the meaning of it, so we're not as confused as to what he means. So because he doesn't necessarily mean what he says, he means what he means, but he says it a different way. So when you start to learn Greek, uh, you get into all this, and it can be really interesting um, because there's. Uh, I, I'm a student of. Johannine studies mean that I pay particularly close attention to John's writings, and he loves to use rhyming in the Greek, but we miss that rhyme when we see it in the English, and that doesn't take away from the validity of God's Word. It's just that we're missing out on a little bit. That's why I say that Greek is kind of like reading in HD. We see that he's purposely rhyming on something. It's like, oh, wow, that's that's pretty interesting there. So Okay, that sounds like what, a lot of fun all of a sudden, Chris. This John, this John rhyming stuff, I want to get a little sample of that. <laughs> well, Do share. <laughs> well, you get into, well, I'll tell you, you know, something that's very interesting is that, I'll give you an example, in the book of Revelation, I was just teaching this, and so John uh, has a particular way that he uses the word uh, worship, or the word marvel, and he, he's in the spirit when he's writing the book of Revelation, he makes it very clear, he's having these visions in the spirit, and then he gets to this, he sees this, this uh, which is the whore that's riding upon the beast, and he's tempted to worship it, and he says that, the angel, he says, when I saw it, I marveled. And then an angel looked at him and says, well, why do you marvel at the marvel? And it's a play on words. Hmm. And it's it's really the word he's using is worship. And it almost seems like what John is suggesting here is that while in the spirit, he sees this deception and he's tempted to worship. And so it gives us this idea that whatever's coming, whatever this represents, which we're not, we won't get into, but whatever this represents, it was so deceptive that he was tempted to worship while still having this vision. So it gives us a word of caution about being discerning in the last days, being discerning in this time period that we're living in, because of if, if John could end up worshiping it, it, what does that say about us? And it rhymes. Why marvel at the marvel? And so yeah. it's really, really interesting. That is interesting. Now, let's talk about just the Greek language. It was probably the ideal language, because um, it was probably the most fully developed language in the history of the world that yeah, we then got we then receive God's word in that language. So we've got, we've got the best language available to understand God's word um, at the time and still to this day. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a product of uh, the Greek expansion, Hellenism. Just about everybody at that time knew somewhat of Greek. We don't, we don't have Jesus quoting anything from Greek, but if we understand he was an educated man, and he was, he would have known Greek, he would have been familiar with it. Uh, and of course, he was in Palestine, his ministry was there, and they would have been very familiar with Greek. Um, and then, uh, you know, the gospel spread in this language, and it was able to reach the world. When Jesus gives the, the, the mandate to go into all the world of the ethnos and preach the gospel to other people groups, uh, that would have been accomplished by Greek, not necessarily Hebrew, because the whole the whole ethnos didn't know as, uh, Second Temple Judaism or Hebrew. They would have known Greek. So it's really the plan of God. And using the Greek language, it was used as a tool to spread the gospel in the first century. And it really is, if you have time, understandably, there are pastors and ministers that don't have the time for that. Pastor is a very uh, grueling job, as is anything that we do. Um, but if you have time and you really want to make an effort, it's a great thing because we see it as the tool that God used to give us the first message of the message of Christ in at first, I should say. Mm-hmm. Chris, what is the Greek word for uh, which expresses total and comprehensive knowledge? Well, you could say gnosis, uh, or you could say oida. I mean, I wrote about it in um, the book of Revelation. There's two. There's there's epignosis. There's gnosis. Uh, but in the Revelation, where Jesus says, "I know your works." He's saying, I owed them. I mean, I have this this vast knowledge. I liken it to how Google Earth comes in and just sees everything. I mean, there's really, actually, um, the, the government was complaining that Google Earth is too invasive. You're seeing too much. We, we see everything that goes on. We're seeing what people are doing on the rooftops. And, and uh, so Jesus says, I know your works. So he has a total, complete knowledge of the good. He has a, a knowledge of the bad, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's taken that in, into consideration. And he's extended to his mercy, which is really good. Uh, because his message to the seven churches is mercy. I mean, he's really, he comes down on them on uh, five of the seven, but he gives them a chance to get it right. And so I say to the person that's listening today is that no matter what you've done, whether what, even if it's bad, he still wants to give you mercy. He's still lending an olive branch to you. Uh, and if it's good, okay, then you can assume that he's pleased with it, even though other people may have not seen your good works. He, he knows them and and you can rest knowing that your reward is laid up for you in heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris, I don't know if I should start this right now, but I want to get you going on, in your book, Letters from Jesus, Studies from the yeah. Seven Churches of Revelation. My first thought is, do you have a favorite letter? You know, um... <laughs> or is that not I, a fair I, question? I, that's a fair question. It's fair, because you think if there's seven, there's probably one that I liked. I think it would change over time, just depending on where I'm at. But I do like, in light of my thesis work, which is on suffering, um, I do like what's going on in the church in Smyrna. I mean, they're really under the gun. They're persecuting. They're being persecuted. They're experiencing tribulation and poverty. And uh, Jesus tells them, but you're still rich. And uh, they're about to suffer 10 days, and they're going to be thrown into prison. And I like this because it's not really the model of the American church. I mean, the American church does not seem to be getting thrown into prison. There's not a whole lot of suffering compared to the rest of the world, which goes on to the American church. So I see, I I think that as Americans, um, we can gain a lot to see what first century Christianity may have been like or was like for at least several churches at that time, uh, the suffering that they were going through and how Jesus commends them on their courageousness and their faithfulness. And I really started to admire the Smyrnians uh, when I put this, when I put this together. Yeah, Yeah. I I like the courageousness. That's a a relevant topic for today. Let me take a little break. Reverend Chris Palmer is my guest. He's the founder and pastor of Light of uh, Today Church in Novi, Michigan. And he's also has a very popular podcast called Greek for the Week. And his book, 
is called Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. After a short break, we'll be right back with Chris. We are back with Chris Palmer. He's written a book called Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. He also uh, does a weekly podcast called Greek for the Week. And Chris, I I know how hard doing a podcast can be because I've read about it. <laughs> but uh, tell me what you cover, uh, what you typically cover in, in your uh, podcast, Greek for the Week. Yeah, so we do, um, there's a segment that I do on Instagram and I put it on Facebook where I take one minute every Wednesday and uh, I pick a verse and I talk about it from the Greek or I highlight some type of syntactical uh, observation or maybe a deeper insight of what a word means or how the author's nuancing a word. Uh, something that is kind of contrasting and maybe interesting that, that you maybe couldn't discover in the English. And I make a life application with it and how a person can can guide their life by it. Uh, and so we look at that for about 12 to 15 minutes. And, you know, it's been helpful for a lot of ministers and preachers. Um, I got to admit, I'm not the best preacher in the world. I'm a pastor. I teach, but I know, but I love to fuel preachers and I love to give them nerdy egghead things that they may find as a really valuable preaching point. They can take it and run with it. And I can look at them and say, way to preach that thing, guys. You know, way to yeah. preach that thing. <laughs> That's awesome. So can you give, a, give, us, give us a little sample of what it's like to be uh, hearing your podcast? I mean, not maybe not go the whole 12 minutes, of course, but just give us a little, this is what I talked about, this is how it applies, this is how we digest it, all that. Yeah, so I would look at perhaps, okay, so today is Wednesday, and I've been doing a series on the Beatitudes, and so I talked about blessed are the peacemakers. And uh, so today I talked about the word there, uh, the, the word peacemakers from the Greek word erene. Erene has to do with, um, it essentially means peace, but Jesus is talking about being a peacemaker. And he's talking about getting into, and that word is implying, not necessarily avoiding a situation that's volatile. I think sometimes some of us look at our, our making peace, maybe staying away from those that are troublesome. But it kind of means getting into that situation and uh, getting involved in that and through it, through the wisdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit uh, and through the guidance of the Word of God is bringing about a peaceful outcome. And it's, it kind of serves us as believers is that we've been put on this earth to be salt and light. We've been put on this earth to solve problems, not evade problems and run from problems. And we see this in the life of Jesus where he's kind of finds himself <laughs> in the middle of everybody's problems, you know. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have to reach out to a centurion and help his child. He doesn't have to reach out to a woman by the well but he who's had five husbands. And uh, but he kind of gets himself into these misadventures. But through it all, he makes peace and he he, it, he he catches trouble for that. But that's what it is in being a believer. And so how can we apply that in our own life? And uh, so I kind of expand on that. And maybe there's a. A situation between a mother and a father that we can help out, or there's a, a conflict in our church that we can be the arbitration in that to bring about a peaceful outcome. And so it, it really goes to show that being a believer has a lot to do with um, having a backbone and not necessarily being made of jello and just kind of being uh, pleasing on both sides, but finding a proper middle. And that takes the that takes the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. 
And uh, so that would be kind of like a Greek for the week. Twelve yeah. minutes, and, and then we're done. So. Yeah, I just felt like I learned a whole bunch in three minutes. So thank you for that. That's <laughs> that's lovely, Chris. Um, let's good. talk. Let's talk about the seven letters a little bit and just how the messages to those early churches are they still relevant to our churches today? I mean, they have to be, and I would absolutely say so uh, because we see that these problems are. Um, or, well, the way I break it down, I guess you say, Bill, is that the, you could take the seven churches. They have three main problems. Three problems that they're going through. Number one, they have this this. Key, Several of them have this keen desire to sort of assimilate with the culture and become part of the culture. They're drawn to the culture. And then you see there's a couple of the two of them, Sardis and uh, Smyrna, they're suffering. They're, they're, they're being persecuted. And then there's a couple of them there that, like Laodicea, uh, I say Philadelphia and Smyrna are suffering. And then Sardis and Laodicea, they're like, hey, we're complacent. Everything's going so well for us. We're just going to kind of go on easy street. God must be favoring us because we're not being persecuted. We're, we're the rich ones. Laodicea was actually a very wealthy place uh, because of the wool that they sold and the medicine. They were kind of like the pharmaceutical city, and they're doing well. So they felt they had God's favor, and they weren't really no longer interested in in God and, and serving him the way that – with the fervency that they should have been. Uh, and I, so these are tremendous problems that we face in our churches today. And, and what I say is kind of understanding that the, the, the seven churches of Revelation is kind of key to – going through the book of Revelation, because you would hear it differently. If, I mean, if you were the church in Smyrna and you were being persecuted, you'd kind of take the message a little bit differently. You'd probably see it more as a message of hope and, hey, let's keep on pushing through this thing. Uh, if you're complacent, you'd see it as a warning to say, hey, we need to really kind of shape up. And then if you were the, the people in uh, that were uh, assimilating to the culture, you probably might have a fear of God put inside if you like, maybe we should repent and, and reconsider our actions here. So that's why I say that the message of Revelation is often heard very differently by people across the spectrum, and it should be. And I think that's the wisdom and strategy of the Holy Spirit in using symbolism to convey uh, the, the, the text that's there. So mm-hmm. I think that, sure. Chris, when you uh, have discussions with believers, do you find that most Bible students are regularly going to find out what the, the origin of the word is or what the Greek is? teaches and how to better understand scripture or do you think most of us just pick up their bible and read it and leave it at that i think that the bulk majority of people would probably do that and i don't have a problem with that because i understand that we're all at a place you know and god and you can gain a tremendous amount of of uh from reading the word of god just at face value because our translations are correct i mean whether you're using the niv or the nasb uh, or the Lexham English Bible, or whatever. You, your translation is correct. I mean, it's going to come on. If you're doing Greek 1 and you're translating, you'll see how that works. I don't think, I always say, I don't think there's a Dr. Evil that's behind uh, translations committees trying to lead us astray. I mean, they mm-hmm. don't, that, people that really throw translations under the bus, I, in all due respect to them, I feel that they're misinformed. Uh, but there are people that really want to get deeper. And um, I would say that preachers probably, to answer your question, Bill, have more of a propensity to handle the Greek language because they're coming up with sermons and bits of information to teach. And, and at some point, you may want to go a little deeper. Uh, but I would suggest to those preachers, if they have the time, if they have the financial resources or the ability to learn how the language works, they would do themselves or serve themselves well to do that because understanding how language functions and uh, syntax is really going to tease out more more meaning for you that is actually uh, that actually brings something out of the text. It's like wow, that re- I would never have known that, um, and it's right. it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding to get to that point, and it brings a lot of control over your information, which is an attractive feature about a speaker. 
You know, and Chris, once you have that experience of going to and finding out what the Greek word means and how it's best understood, it's like you can't go back. You can't go back. No, for sure. Yeah, you, it's you so can't rich. go back. Yeah, it's rich, and you know, as I said, it really gives you. It, it, it's humbling. You know, I think Greek is a humbling experience because you, you don't. You do more. <laughs> you do more unlearning that you than you do learning. Uh, it's also a spiritual discipline that can be spiritually formative because you do handle knowledge. And I always teach that when you're handling knowledge, okay, you must become a practitioner at some point because to not be a practitioner is going to lead to a coldness and a, and a non-compassion on people because you're stuck behind a book and behind a desk or in an armchair in a library with a dusty book and you're, you're seeing it on paper, but you're not seeing it, how it actually works. So, you know, I really felt and really felt I was being directed by the Holy Spirit is that if you're going to learn all this knowledge, then you have to be a practitioner of it. And so that you can understand how it works in the field and in the wide world of pastoring and missions so that you don't become uh, incompassionate and just by the letter. Uh, so it really becomes a walking a tightrope and, and balancing the situation out. Um, but it's rewarding nonetheless. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great experience. And if anyone has the time to do it, they should, they should definitely give it a try or look to scholars uh, for their help in, in instances. Yeah, Chris, you're such a thoughtful guy. Let me ask you, because I know you've, I know you've dealt with this, uh, yeah. the kind of one of the most common questions someone may ask when they're beginning a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Yep. What would be one of those most common questions? Uh, I think for sure the question that, uh, you know, uh, Ravi Zechariah said this, and I think he was right on, is that the question of suffering is the thorn in the side of the Christian apologist. Mm-hmm. Why, does, why does suffering happen? I mean, that's my that's my thesis work on it. And, you know, my, my, my advisor told me, okay, you're going to do this thesis work, but I just want you to understand, you're going to have to be satisfied without getting an answer, that having a question unanswered is the why does suffering happen? I mean, what, if there's a good God... And he's if he's good and he's loving and he's all powerful and he's sovereign, why do bad things go unreconciled? And uh, so that's that's the question. The answer we can we can pontificate about that. Uh, we can have dialogue and discussion about that. Hopefully, our our thoughtfulness moves the conversation forward uh, in our our presuppositions about God, about His Word, and about ourselves and, and broken and fallen humanity. Uh, but. I would say that's the question. And if you can do a good job about being thought provoking, not saying they have all the answers, because I think that when you start saying you have all the answers, people stop listening. Uh, But if you can just present refreshing perspectives, such as why is this COVID crisis going on? Uh, What does this mean for us? And what does it mean for the world? And where is God in all this? Uh, An interesting perspective may be refreshing. Someone might just appreciate it, rethink their ideas of their worldview, I think, though. Yeah, I appreciate that. Chris, you're such a delightful guest. I also want to let listeners know that Chris wrote a really good uh, article at the Christian Post, christianpost.com, about what's going on in the world right now. I think you'll enjoy uh, heading over there, and uh, you can find Chris Palmer's um, editorial over there as well. Chris, thanks for doing the show. Really nice to have you on. Bill, you're a blessing, and I thank you for your your heart for the the kingdom and his word, and I just love being on. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Have a great day. Chris Palmer's been my guest again. His book we chatted about today was Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. He has, however, written other books, and you can just uh, go find him on Amazon or definitely head over to ChristianPost.com and see his op-ed. It was uh, well-written and nicely done. We'll be back in just a couple minutes with Pastor John Somerville.
Welcome back to the show. Always glad to be welcoming John Somerville back to the program. He's a senior pastor at City Church, Minneapolis. You can head over to citychurchminneapolis.org to see his good-looking picture and learn more about uh, his community, his worshiping community. Uh, But he's uh, joining me right now. John, welcome. Well, it's great to be with you, Bill. Yeah. Now, I understand your daughter got married last week. We well, she was supposed to get married this coming Friday. We okay. had a wedding planned with 225 people, okay. um, and uh, the whole nine yards. Um, and uh, we had to improvise. She uh, came back home a week early. She lives in Chicago. Came back home a week early, just anticipating that something might be up. And our plans successively changed each day from a wedding with 250 to a wedding with 50 to a wedding with 35 to a wedding with six of us. So. Uh, we did. Uh, we we moved it up six days and did it in our living room. Um, since I'm a pastor, she has a pastor in the family. We had that that was covered, and uh, so um, her now husband's parents were there. We were there, and uh, we got it done. So yeah, that's great. Did you wave your now stipend? Now they're on their honeymoon. Now they're on their honeymoon, not uh, in Napa, but in uh, South Dakota. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, boy, what a change of plans. Yeah. How did she hold up through all of it? You know, obviously there were some tears at different moments, but I think by the end they were sort of embracing the spontaneity, and uh, they know that they'll have a story to tell. And, uh, you know, they love each other. They they love God. We're pleased that they have, uh, you know, they've chosen to spend their lives together. And um, I think that all in all it was a great experience. She was beaming from ear to ear during oh, the whole that's thing. that's wonderful. So, I love hearing great. that. And how was your online uh, sermons? How was your online preaching going? Well, we're we're just you know first time we've ever done it this past weekend, um, and uh, it looks like it's going to change even more um, uh, as we move forward. We're just trying to figure it out. We're not a large church; we're sort of a mid-sized church, mm-hmm. so we ha- aren't used to filming things and and putting things up. Um, but uh, I think we did a decent effort this last weekend. We'll get better, I think, as we do this. But you know, we're we're trying to figure it out. I. I've been telling people that there's a years ago we lived in Switzerland for a few years and had a French teacher, and she told me in a, a, a proverb that apparently is familiar to those in uh, in that part of the world. Um, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed men are kings, hmm. and uh, I think we're all feeling like one-eyed, you know, maybe even half-eyed um, uh, men. We're just trying to figure this out. Yeah. John, I, I understand that you've got uh, something from your grandmother's diary? Yes. When when the, the whole coronavirus thing broke, it, re, it made me remember. I, my grandmother was born in 1903. Okay. Um, she lived to be 100, um, so she died in 2003. And um, she was the matriarch of the family, a really influential person. In fact, the daughter that just got married, her middle name is Marie, which was my grandmother's name. Um, and when she died, an aunt of ours found a diary that she had begun to keep when she was 15 years old, a sophomore in high school um, in Kansas City in October of 1918, Wow! just as the influenza, Spanish flu influenza epidemic broke. And so over the successive months, she recorded her life, which included school and boys and dresses and <laughs> influenza. Wow. Um, and she spoke of deaths and uh, an uncle that became very ill for for a number of weeks. It was, and so we went back and reread um, that part of the diary. It's fascinating. All right, okay, you tease me big time here. You're gonna, do you have a couple of excerpts from it that would show 
what this little 15-year-old girl was recording. Sure. You know, right at the beginning of her of the diary, which she began at the beginning of April, this is an April 12th entry. She said, Ralph Littlefield's brother, James, died with influenza. And she two days later, she mentioned that her uncle Alex was very low. A specialist was called in and Uncle Fred took a nurse over there. Um, And then she began to write about schools closing, churches not meeting, uh, businesses being limited to nine to four hours, Um, then about middle of October, she wrote, influenza is still raging. Every paper you pick up has about two columns of deaths in it. There's been a funeral every day at St. Aloysius. I think that was the Catholic church down the street. She said, many of the deaths are young married people, women in particular, who leave several small children. Hmm. Um, We're hoping that Uncle Alex will get well, but he's still seriously ill. Oh, boy. So it was, uh, you know, it was very, you know, and they, they, November doesn't she doesn't mention much. Um, it seemed that the things were a little under control, and then she, she begins to reference in December. Um, at one point, she said there were 80 deaths, um, 21 not caused by pneumonia or influenza. So that was you know roughly 60 people who died of the flu. But just so thoughtful coming from a 15 year old, and and it's um, I don't know if you have any more, but I find this pretty fascinating. Sure. You know, it's interesting. She talks a lot about the impact on her. Um, for example, my, my grandmother ended up graduating number one in her high school class. So school was really important to her. So she was talking about the, the superintendent making the decision to not have school or have school. And um, so she talked very honestly about it. At one point she said she wrote, um, and I don't have this one right in front of me. I don't know how the page uh, marked, but she said, um, um, I'm really hoping I, I understand. She said school looks like school's on for tomorrow. It's too bad. I haven't done my homework. And then she added a little bit later, yippee, the, the last edition of the paper says school is canceled for tomorrow. Um, so she's a 15 year old. <laughs> right. That was my sentiment every day. I hope school's canceled tomorrow because I don't have my homework done. Yeah. So, but it, it's very interesting just to read it through the lens of that of someone of that age. Yeah, no kidding. And that was uh, 1918. And, 1918. Yeah. And boy, now fast forward, and we're, we're looking at something that's, uh, that's probably not to the magnitude of this, but it's uh, pretty big and daunting, and uh, we're, we're all looking for answers and hope, and there's uh, never been a time, I think, before in my lifetime, of course, where we've had uh, a consensus on looking for... Uh, a cure and a vaccine and uh, the the right help for the right people. I mean, we all are looking for answers, John. Right. Well, I think that the predominant emotion that many of us have is fear right now. Um, and uh, in good times, we like to think of ourselves as bulletproof. You know, mm-hmm. I've got this. And that is until we don't. And then we feel helpless. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that this is where Christian faith um and our faith in God really becomes real. Um, uh, this this weekend, what I shared with our, I, I abandoned the sermon text and topic I had planned and, and just went to Psalm 46. Years ago when I was in college, I was reading through the Psalms and I was going through a rough patch and I read the words in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. And then the poet goes on to just describe 
a number of different ways in which we feel insecure um, or isolated or uh, under attack and addresses them with this idea that God's going to take care of us. Um, and I just told, I told everyone that, that these words are no longer poetry for us now. They are our reality. Mm-hmm. So true. It's a great psalm to revisit. I think I've probably read, a, read it a half a dozen times in the last two weeks, and I've, I've heard it on radio a number of times by other people as well. So a big shout-out to listeners just to open and go through Psalm 46 because it is, it is really a good one. So, uh, John, as people just navigate with some of their uncertainty and all that, um, speak hope into the lives of people that are thinking, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Well, you know, we don't, uh, God is never, things are never out of his hands. Um, And I think we need to remember that. That's not to say that we will not encounter difficulty. I think one of the things we need to be is honest. Um, uh, There are reasons why we feel insecure, why we feel isolated now that we're all having to stay in place, why we feel like there's there's an attack. I mean, and, and it's not just physical. Um, the, it, financially, we know that people are hurting. Um, but our true security can only be found in God, not in the stock market, not in doctors, uh, not even in our ability to move around and be mobile and connected. It's only when we put our full trust in Him that we're going to be secure, that we can face whatever life brings without fear and um, and to face challenges with faith. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of prison ministry over my many years of doing um, uh, events, and I've been able to get into 80 prisons across the country. And one of the things I hear over and over is guys have told me that there's nothing quite like the sound of the jail cell closing for the first time when you realize you are now in prison. <laughs> you are right. isolated in a way you've you've maybe never known before and he said the whisper that you hear in your ear is god saying do i have your attention now mm-hmm. and i i think uh on kind of a bigger scale i think that's kind of a a good thing for a lot of people around the world do i have your attention now yeah well i've been on um as you can probably imagine on phone calls and even conference calls with pastors we're all trying to share wisdom and what are we learning what are we doing um and i was on one on monday and you know, we were talking about questions like, how do you provide weekly worship experiences? How do you lead the community spiritually? How do you help people remain in community with each other? How do we meet needs? And then someone toward the end said, how can we think about creatively about how God can use this for good? Um, and we're not saying that this this bug, this disease is good. That's not what we, we as Christians, we cannot say that. That's not true. But what we can say is that Romans 8:28, while it doesn't say that all things are good, it says all, that God can use all things for good. And so I think we're trying to think creatively and pray. Um, and one of the ways you, you, I think God can do it is, is what you've mentioned, that he has people's attention. Um, but there are probably other ways as well where we can show how, uh, how to be the church um, in this culture at a time when people are looking for answers. And it gets a little trickier uh, being the church, wouldn't you say, John, when we're trying to be respectful and keep the distance that uh, we're being asked to keep, uh, yet we're still at a time when people need our help. Right. And, and I, there, is, there is a tension there. I think that for, for most, most people, um, 
we need to follow the public health guidelines, minimize our time in public places. And, and the reason is out of love, love for the most vulnerable, the people that, that really can't get this. And, you know, we've been connecting with people in our church, um, young and old, who have underlying health issues. Um, my parents are 90 and 91, uh, you know, so they're, the building they live in is on lockdown. Those are things that we have to do. Uh, and yet we also have to think creatively about how to be the people of faith. And, um, you know, there, Martin Luther was uh, lived through a plague in, in the town of Wittenberg where he lived, um, and he wrote about how um, if your neighbor, uh, you know, he said, help me protect those, um, you know, avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to, he called it, pollute them or infect them to cause their death by my negligence. Mm. But then he also said, those who can provide care um, if my neighbor needs me, I shall not avoid the place or person, but go freely. And so for us in our culture, that's primarily first responders. And so our, 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 our health professionals, doctors and nurses and others, um, you know, that's part of a Christian calling um, for those who have those professions is to serve at times like this. So, and I think there are other ways that we can serve without actually um, violating some of these public health guidelines. We can buy groceries and drop them off. We can do other things, pick up prescriptions, um, and, and we can pray. Um, we cannot minimize prayer. Yeah. I know, don't know what God is going to be doing in all of this, but I, I'm comforted and kind of excited about the last verse in the 21st chapter of John where it, it said in verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Mm, you start to think, wonderful. oh my, look at the things that he did, that there's not even enough books in the world to, to cover the things that he did and the things that he still obviously can do and will do uh, in the midst yeah. of this uh, time of uncertainty for many, many people. You know, Bill, the other thing that's puzzling, uh, some, uh, something that I've been asked questions about before, is Jesus at one point says to his disciples, he says, you will do even greater things than me. Now, who, who, who can beat Jesus? I mean, heal the sick, <laughs> raise the dead, all of that. Great point. And what he, really, what he really means is not greater in magnitude. He means greater in scope. Um, uh, you, are, you know, greater in the sense that when you take – he has gifted us as the church, and he's asked us to go carry on his mission – Jesus was the incarnation, you know, God, God in flesh. And he says the church is the body of Christ. So we are his body. And just think about the impact that we can have as we pray and work and serve, um, the impact that we can have that is even beyond what Jesus did because he was limited by time and space at that point in his, in his life. Mm-hmm. Let me take a short break, John, if you don't mind. Pastor John Somerville is my guest. He is a uh senior pastor at City Church Minneapolis. We'll take a little break. Be right back with John. back with Pastor John Somerville. He's at City Church Minneapolis. You can head to citychurchminneapolis.org to learn more about his church. And John, um, what uh, discoveries have you made so far 
since you have been since you have been thinking about a lot of this uh, as in terms of addressing your congregation. Have you made any personal discoveries? Well, I, I think the resilience of people, the, the willingness that people have to just uh, do what needs to be done, and 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 the desire they have for for ke- personal connection. Um, you know, we're trying to do. We have small groups. We have about twenty small groups in in our church, the size we are, and um, those groups can't meet. Um, but we're using conference technology um, to help them. Uh, phone conference and video conference calling uh, technology to help them connect. And we're finding that while they're not spending a lot of time studying the Bible in those conversations, they are sharing from their lives and praying for one another. Um, so there's a deep hunger for, for connection that it has, it has not gone away in the midst of this. And then any um, suggestions uh, for us in terms of reaching out to friends who might be on the fringe uh, spiritually? Well, one of the things that we're encouraging people to do, and I've been doing, is just texting people um, and uh, or calling people and just checking in on people that, that you may think are, are isolated, particularly those older um, or those who maybe have health conditions where they have already been essentially under quarantine for the last couple of weeks. Another group of people we've been thinking about is we're a church with a lot of young families. And some of those families have deep Minnesota roots and have lots of aunts and uncles and parents and sisters and brothers. And some of our families moved here from some other place. They have no one. Mm. Um, And so they may not be physically vulnerable, but relationally and emotionally, um, we're trying to make certain that we reach out to them. So there are a lot of people that we can just connect with and, you know, hey, I I care for you. How are you doing? Um, And listen. Yeah. So, John, how up? prepared are you for your Easter Sunday uh, message? Have you already started crafting that? And I would, I would love, I would love for you to just flood our listeners ears with some really good news right now. Well, you know, um, what's interesting is that we, we plan a year in advance. And so, uh, I did abandon the text I had for this last week and subbed in Psalm 46, our student ministries pastor speaking this week on a, on a text that we weren't planning to teach on. But what I chose for um, for Easter Sunday is the story of the two travelers on the road to Emmaus when Jesus joins them. Um, and they don't know who he is, and they have this conversation. And, of course, the end of the story, if you've read it, you know that at the end he he says something that reminds them of Jesus, and he disappears, and they realize that he's been with them. And the way that story starts is they are confused and discouraged and downcast. Um, and that is the way that the Easter story, the Easter Sunday morning begins is the women are going to the tomb. The disciples are huddled up hiding in a lock, behind a locked door. These two travelers are leaving the city of Jerusalem because their hopes have been dashed. And the resurrection becomes a reality. Um, and so I think when we're talking about Easter, we talked about, you know, this year we're probably not going to begin the service that we provide, which will be via video. We're not going to start with Christ the Lord is risen today. We're going to end with it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to start with the sense of, you know, that was a dark moment. Um, the Saturday of Holy Week is what some, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about before with people. Saturday of Holy Week was a depressing day when people felt that their entire world had collapsed. And Easter Sunday morning changed everything. So we want to point to the resurrection, but we need to acknowledge that we are in a little bit of a Saturday of Holy Week experience right now as, as, as a community. It is interesting when you think of that Saturday, 
the people were feeling completely lost, and Jesus has now in the tomb, and he said to them over and over and over, on the third day I will rise, on the third day I will rise, yet on the third day Mary shows up to complete the burial procedure. You know, what they ex- what they were expecting was Jesus still being in the tomb. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I am firmly convinced that Jesus did rise from the dead. There, there are critics and skeptics who say, oh, the disciples made this story up. Um, they knew Jesus' predictions, so they just fabricated this. Uh, the reality is, yes, Jesus did predict his, his resurrection, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Um, and so they didn't make this up. This was, not, this was totally unexpected. Um, it's one of the reasons I, I believe firmly that Jesus did rise from the dead. Yeah, of course. Well, uh, John, it's um, really lovely to hear about your, your uh, grandma's uh, journal as a 15-year-old uh, writing about this, uh, the, uh, the flu back then. And I don't know if you have another excerpt from that. I find that really interesting. Or maybe you could share a little bit about how she was uh, flirting with the boys. <laughs> well, and toward the end of the diary, a few years later, she begins to mention a, a boy named Bill. And uh, Bill would become her husband, my grandfather. And uh, so she did, she did write about that. You know, I think the thing that, that strikes me that I would just mention is um, church was really important to her family. Um, and so she continually mentions the people from the church. Um, at one point, there's a, a, a reference here. She says there were, this is the negative part. She says there were 23 deaths from influenza today. She says the band, the band has been tightened, and all large stores have, had, have to open at 9 and close at 4. And then she says there will be no Sunday school again tomorrow. And you can tell there's some pathos in that, that she was hoping to be with her friends but couldn't. Um, so you know, she became, uh, she was a woman of great faith, a woman who influenced many people. Um, it's the reason we gave our daughter her, her name as her, as her middle name. So she, uh, uh, her faith shows up even as a 15 year old in, in what she writes. Yeah. Just beautiful. And then, uh, what did you uh, do in your quiet time this morning? Um, I'm reading through second Corinthians. Um, in fact, I read, uh, let me pull it up here. I, I read a verse that I thought really captures something we need to think about, about confidence. Let me just grab it here. Um, it's from 2 Corinthians um, chapter uh, 3, and I'm reading in an old, in a, an old paraphrase by a guy named J.B. Phillips, um, and he says, this is verses 4 to 6, he says, we dare not say such things because of the confidence we have in God through Christ, and not because we are confident in our own powers, it is God who makes us competent, competent. Um, and then he goes on. But the point is, is that I think many of us, certainly church leaders, um, families, parents, mothers, you know, we're all feeling uh, like we're not quite sure of how to do this. And I'm sure that our public health officials and our physicians and, and government officials are feeling this way. Um, we're not confident of our own powers, but it's God who makes us competent. And so I take hope in that and, and uh, just really believe that God will um, uh, see us through this and see us through this with opportunities for, for good that we should, we should be looking for. I do see um, a lot of people getting out of their uh, comfort zone and having conversations with their friends and neighbors who are on the fringe because they can't help but to share that the hope that they have in Christ right now, given the circumstances going on in the world. So that's a good thing, and I, I pray always that 
many people will come to faith as a result of this. I, I heard that there's a big spike in people wanting to get their wills done and everything else. So if you're planning uh, end-of-life stuff, you should also be thinking about uh, eternity stuff as well. Well, you know, one one thing I would just say, that it, this is not the first, quote, plague or, or illness that swept through a culture. Um, these have happened for a long time. And one of the things historians tell us about the early Christian church in the first two or 300 years is that there were times of plague, and the Christians acted differently from their pagan neighbors. The pagans fled for the hills and abandoned even their relatives who were sick, but the Christians stayed, and some of them at risk of their life, and they provided um, basic nursing care. And many of those who lived figured, well, let's go be with these Christians. And so the church grew in times like that, in like, times like this. Yeah. John, thanks for sharing the story. I love hearing about uh, your your. Your grandma's journal from 1918, that was really fun, and I appreciate uh, you coming on doing the show as well. It's great to be with you, Bill. Yep, thank you so much. Pastor John Somerville has been my guest, uh, senior pastor at City Church Minneapolis. You can go to citychurchminneapolis.org if you want to learn more about John's church. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Hour 2 is just ahead. Dr. Everett Piper will be joining me, and then Pastor Daniel Henderson. It's going to be a great hour. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.